Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with some breaking news. A shelter-in-place warning at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Authorities there say there is an, quote, armed and dangerous, unquote, person on or near the campus. The governor, Roy Cooper, now pledging all resources to capture the person he is characterizing as the shooter. Moments ago, a law enforcement source told CNN that federal law enforcement has responded to the scene, but at this point, there was no information, at least not yet, about anyone uh, being shot. Uh, right now, we're getting information in uh, about a situation where somebody uh, is armed and dangerous, but we do not yet know if anybody on the campus in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, has been wounded or shot in any way. We're going to go now to uh, former Boston Police Commissioner uh, Ed Davis. Um, Ed, uh, right now, uh, this is an unusual situation. Moments ago, local schools around the UNC campus at Chapel Hill were told uh, they were clear to dismiss students. What does that tell you about what might be going on right now? It would seem to me, although I'm just a layperson, that if there were still worries and fears of an active shooter situation, they would not be dismissing students. Uh, Yes, I agree, Jake. Uh, It seems as though the situation is winding down at this point in time, but it's sort of a worst-case scenario uh, situation. You you had an incident that occurred. You clearly have either a a shooting incident or an armed person they believe uh, was very dangerous. They've locked everything down. Now they're starting to clear those places, but they don't have their hands on the suspect. Uh, Sometimes these guys get out of the area, and they're on the run. Other times they hunker down in place. And so there's real uncertainty, uh, especially in the immediate vicinity of where the incident happened, right? You've got to keep that place locked down until you can clear every room, every area where the suspect might be hiding. If you can rule out that he or she is in that er- is not in that area, then, uh, then you can start to... to uh, open things up. And the peripheral areas are easier to open up than the actual scene of, of where the incident occurred. All right, Commissioner Davis, uh, stand by. I want to bring in uh, CNN's Nick Valencia, who's covering uh, this for us and has the latest information. Nick, what is the latest? What do we know concretely about what, if anything, happened on campus or near campus today? Yeah, we know that the university sent out an alert shortly after 1 p.m. to indicate that there was an armed and dangerous person on or near campus. And then a lockdown went immediately into effect. And we began seeing images from our local affiliates, WTVD and WRAL, of what appeared to be a very chaotic situation and an all too familiar situation on campuses of individuals, students, it appears, being let out 
in a hurried fashion with their hands up, escorted by police officers in tactical gear. That was around 1 p.m. into the 2 p.m. hour. And then the scene abruptly changed and it seemed as though things were calming down. It was just uh, shortly, a little while ago, that the University of North Carolina police put out a photo of what they're calling a person of interest. And I want to show that to our viewers here. This photo, the uh, tweet or the X, it says, uh, this photo shows a person of interest in today's armed and dangerous person situation. If you see this person, keep your distance, put your safety first and call 911. That is coming from the UNC Police Department. Uh, prior to that, we had heard or seen a tweet from uh, Governor Roy Cooper, who had said that this was an active shooter situation and he was pledging any and all resources resources needed to catch this person of interest. We have no information uh, as of yet updating from uh, the University Police Department there in UNC. Uh, so as far as we can tell you, it's still very much so an active situation with that lockdown still in effect. However, we are hearing reports of those schools in the area, middle schools, elementary schools, uh, allowing st uh, parents to pick their students up. So some conflicting reports right now and some conflicting images from the information that we have to go off of. But the latest is that a person of interest, a photo has been put out there of a person of interest in this armed a person situation happening at Chapel Hill. Jake. Nick, stand by. Um, Commissioner Davis, um, I understand police wanting to err on the side of caution uh, in this day and age uh, where there are far too many uh, active shooter situations in the United States, especially uh, there are concerns at least, uh, heightened concerns at least, especially around back to school time. Um, but based on what UNC, uh, University of North Carolina police have said, they have not described a shooting. They have described an armed and dangerous person situation. Is it possible uh, that there has not yet been any sort of shooting? There was just an individual that was deemed armed and dangerous uh, and was on the loose, uh, as it were. Yes, that certainly is a possibility. Um, you know, in the in the beginning hours of a situation like this, um, the the information is often wrong. It's often exaggerated. It's it's information that needs to be run to ground before you make any specific uh, decisions. Unfortunately, the airing on the side of caution is the standard right now, simply because lives are are on the line here. Uh, so it, it may actually be an overreaction uh, when all the facts are on the table, but you don't know that right now. And there are public officials that are saying, you know, there was a shooting there. So that kind of confusion uh, requires detective work. It requires getting people into the, into the location and inter interviewing witnesses and potential victims. It takes time to do that before you understand exactly what's happening. And in the meantime, there's this kind of confusion, unfortunately. Many students with whom CNN reporters have spoken um, did not actually hear a shooting, although, of course, we continue to see uh, reports. How are police right now figuring out what exactly happened? Well, the first thing they do is to go to the exact scene and interview people that were there or were anywhere in the area. Um, they're talking to witnesses. They're talking to potential victims. The secondary level is immediately downloading any camera footage that is that is in the area that has become critically important in police operations today and they'll have uh, technical teams that are out there that are looking at that information right now uh, i'm sure if it was on campus there is a very 
uh, intricate system of cameras that probably allow immediate access to the data uh, to the offices that are investigating. And we do have a good partnership there based upon the vehicles that I've seen in the area. You've got the state police, you've got the uh, campus police, you've got uh, the Chapel Hill Municipal Department. So people are all working together on this. There's going to be a command post set up. That information is being fed to the command post. But, you know, as you're managing an incident like this, there's the incident, which is critical, making sure that everybody is safe and your offices are safe and you're doing everything that is humanly possible to, to maintain safety. On the other side of it, there's the messaging that you're giving out. You know, you see these young kids leaving those uh, dormitories and buildings being herded out with their hands in the air. That's upsetting to the students. It's upsetting to the parents. Really, really difficult situation. All right, Commissioner Ed Davis, uh, thanks so much. We're going to continue to follow all of the developments coming out of Chapel Hill, and we'll bring you an update as soon as we get one in terms of concrete information. In the meantime, let us turn to another major story that we're following today. Three substantial legal developments when it comes to the legal cases involving the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. One, In the federal case brought by special counsel Jack Smith, where Trump is accused of staging a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election, today Judge Tanya Chutkin set the trial date for that case, the federal case about trying to overturn the election, for March 4th, 2024. That would be just one day before Super Tuesday in the presidential primary contest. That's when 15 states will hold their elections, uh, choosing their nominees for president and other office. The second major development comes from Fulton County, Georgia, where today former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Trump's Chief of Staff, took the stand. He's trying to convince the judge there that his case should be moved to federal court instead of Georgia court. There, Meadows could could move to have the entire thing, if he goes to federal court, thrown out if he can successfully make the case that his participation in attempts to subvert Georgia's election results were part of his official White House duties. Third, also in Fulton County, we now know when the former president and his 18 co-defendants will be arraigned on charges related to the conspiracy to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. That date is next Wednesday. In the previous cases, Mr. Trump was arrested and arraigned the same day. Trump will be arraigned first next Wednesday at 9.30 a.m. Next Wednesday, he will be followed by some of the folks that Vice President Pence has referred to as a, quote, gaggle of crackpot lawyers, unquote. Those include Rudy Giuliani at 9.45 a.m., John Eastman at 10 a.m., Sidney Powell at 10.15 a.m. Then former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows will face the judge at 10.30, and the rest of the co-defendants will be arraigned back-to-back throughout the afternoon. They face charges from racketeering to influencing witnesses to conspiracy to commit election fraud. We're going to cover all of these Major developments starting with CNN's Sarah Murray and a closer look at what is unfolding right now in the Fulton County Courthouse. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. To start uh, wholesale trying to change the way that we conduct elections state by state, I can tell you we're asking for problems, we're asking for fraud. Taking the stand in a federal courtroom in Georgia after he, former President Donald Trump, and 17 others were charged with racketeering by the Fulton County District Attorney for their attempts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. You can't ever accept when they steal and rig and rob. 
Meadows, who has kept a stunningly low profile amid the various investigations into Donald Trump, now breaking his silence on the case under oath. Those were challenging times, bluntly, Meadows told the court of his White House tenure. As Meadows seeks to move his case from state to federal court, the focus of Monday's hearing, prosecutors delved into their case and some of the allegations against Meadows. Meadows denying under oath that he directed another White House aide to write a memo about how to delay or disrupt the certification of the election on January 6th, saying he had zero recollection of that happening, and it was the biggest surprise to me upon reading the indictment. Putting Meadows on the stand to challenge the events he's accused of participating in in Georgia, a risky approach for any criminal defendant. Meadows looking to make the case that his activities after the 2020 election were part of his official duties as chief of staff, including arranging the call between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Mr. President, everybody is on the line. And just so this is Mark Meadows, the chief of staff. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. When prosecutors questioned what federal role Meadows was fulfilling in post-election calls with Trump and another purveyor of election falsehoods, his then-personal attorney Rudy Giuliani... We cannot allow these crooks, because that's what they are, to steal an election from the American people. They elected Donald Trump. They didn't elect Joe Biden. Meadows said he was acting as a gatekeeper and insisted there was a federal interest in accurate and fair elections. Meadows also claimed he wasn't the driving force in pushing bogus claims of election fraud. But when then-Attorney General Bill Barr dismissed the fraud claims... I made it clear I did not agree with the idea of saying the election was stolen and putting out this stuff, which I told the president was bullshit. Meadows said he felt that further investigation was warranted. Now, Meadows was on the stand for about three and a half hours today. Then the district attorney's office was able to call some of their witnesses. Up right now is Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who has already testified that the federal government does not play a role in certifying the state election results. And Jake, as you pointed out, the next major milestone in this case is likely to be these arraignments set for September 6th. We're still waiting to see if that's something that's going to happen in a courtroom or if these defendants might waive their appearances. All right, Sarah Murray with the latest. Thanks so much. Now let's go back to that federal case over the alleged conspiracy to overturn the election in seven battleground states, not just Georgia, but seven total. Today, a judge set that trial for March 4th. Now that month alone, March 2024, uh, that's one day before Super Tuesday. It's also three weeks before the trial in the New York hush money case. There's a lot more that goes on in March as well. CNN's Jessica Schneider's with me. Jessica, the defense was pushing for a trial in April 2026. The judge said, no, we're going to do March 4th. How did she arrive at that date? Yeah, well, she really tamped down on Trump's team. She said it would have been unprecedented to wait until 2026 for the criminal trial. And she put it this way, Jake, to Trump's lawyer. She said, you are not getting two more years. This case is not going to trial in 2026. And then she proceeded to really chide Trump's legal team for not already prepping for this possibility of a trial in six months. She said this. She said, any agent, diligent, zealous defense lawyer 
would not have been sitting on their hands waiting for an indictment. So basically saying that Trump's lawyers really should have started their investigation and preparation for this soon after the special counsel started all of his work. John Loro, though, Trump's lawyer, he hit back and he said, look, I was only just brought onto the legal team recently, but that's still not a valid excuse for this. And he also uh, really warned the judge that he wouldn't be able to provide Trump effective legal counsel under this tight of a timeline. John Loro, they're kind of setting up this stage for a future appeal on this issue. And, you know, this um, trial date, it's not only tight, but it is crowded now. So between October and May 2024, all four of the criminal trials against Trump are slated to start. Some of those could slide, but that is really how the calendar looks right now. Really packed, really hectic for his legal team. So prosecutors, they pushed back here. They said that most of their material in this particular case in D.C., it's already known to Trump and his team. So the evidence that they've already handed over, it includes three million pages associated with Trump and his PACs, 170,000 pages from the National Archives, so all information that came from the White House, more than 5 million pages of grand jury transcripts, exhibits. And the prosecution said there are 47,000 pages that they will make key to their case here. So, Jake, prosecutors saying, look, Trump team, it really isn't that tight of a timeline. We're going to be focused on 47,000 pages of these documents. You should easily be able to search these with a keyword search. You should be able to prepare in time for that trial start date in six months. So that looks like it's going to be the start time. It could slide slightly, but the judge here very determined to keep that March 4th date. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. From the mountains of evidence to the trial date set right before the election, is this just the beginning of an extremely messy 2024 calendar? Our legal experts will weigh in next. Plus, that search for an armed individual near the campus of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This comes just two days after racially motivated murders near a Florida college campus. We'll go live to that scene. And a powerful storm headed right for Florida's Gulf Coast. A new storm track is due out in just minutes. We'll bring that to you as well. Busy afternoon. Stay with us. And we're back with an update on that breaking news. Just moments ago, police at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill tweeted, quote, all clear, resume normal activities. The campus had been under a shelter-in-place warning after authorities had said there was a, quote, armed and dangerous person on or near the Chapel Hill, North Carolina campus. Police have not said if there were any shots fired on campus or what initiated this lockdown. We'll bring you that information when and if we get it. Turning to our law and justice lead, Donald Trump says he plans to file an appeal after a federal judge earlier today set his trial date in the federal case brought by special counsel Jack Smith, where Trump is accused of staging a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election nationwide. Joining us now to discuss is Clint Rucker, a former prosecutor in Fulton County District Attorney's Office, and Tom Dupree, who served as the principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George W. Bush. Uh, Tom, the judge has decided March 4th of next year. What do you make of that decision? Well, it doesn't surprise me, Jake. The Trump lawyer's suggestion of a 2026 trial date was aspirational, to say the least. I don't think it was realistic. And look, the judge didn't give either side exactly what it wanted, but there's no question she sided with the prosecutors on this one. She planted her flag for a March trial date. I suspect the Trump team will file a flurry of motions over the course of the next few months, trying to get that trial date bumped back. And we'll see if the judge holds her ground. But at least the opening signal she sent today was she's serious. She thinks this case, while 
historically important, is not terribly complex, and can be tried next March. Do you, do you think, Tom, that, that Trump has a shot on appeal? At this stage of the game, Jake, I do not. I think an appellate court is going to view the trial court's decision to set this trial date with great deference. I don't think the Trump team has a big likelihood of success on appeal. Of course, that doesn't mean they can't go back to the trial judge and periodically ask her to reset the date. So I don't think this is the last battle in what will be a long war. Clint, do you think that President Trump's legal team harmed its chances of getting a court date after the 2024 election by requesting a trial so far away in 2026. Right. First, thank you all so much for having me. And uh, that's absolutely what I think. Uh, I think the judge, in fact, said that that was really a little unrealistic uh, to set the trial out uh, so far um, um, from where we are today. I think she kind of uh, has planted a flag, so to speak, and said, hey, we're going to move this case along. I think the government has said we're going to help you streamline and prepare. We're going to identify what it is you need to uh, focus on. And uh, I think that that two-year window was just um, unreasonable. Tom, when it comes to the arguments that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is raising in Georgia today as he tries to move his case from state to federal court, Meadows is trying to suggest that he was acting in his capacity as White House Chief of Staff when he allegedly uh, assisted Trump in his attempts to uh, overturn the election in Georgia. He told the judge, quote, I dealt with the president's personal position on a number of things. It's still a part of my job to make sure the president is safe and secure and able to perform his job. Serving the president of the United States is what I do, to be clear, unquote. What do you make of that argument? Is it strong? Well, look, I think Mark Meadows has a non-frivolous argument, but I don't think he's ultimately going to be successful. Uh, I mean, his point about that he was following the president's instructions makes him acting in the course of his official duties. That principle only goes so far. It's not the case that anything the president asks him to do is therefore within his official duties. If the president hypothetically asked him to commit a criminal act, that would not be within the course of his official duties. I also think the prosecutor has a decent argument that even if Meadows was trying to act for a political purpose, that would violate the Hatch Act, which is the federal law that prohibits federal officials from engaging in political activity. So again, non-frivolous argument, but at the end of the day, I don't think he's going to win on this one. Clint, if the judge does move the case to federal court from Georgia court, am I correct in assuming that, that the district attorney for Fulton County, Fannie Walls, she can still prosecute the case? And, and do you think that she would change her strategy at all? Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, although the venue for the trial in the case would move from state court to federal court, which, of course, uh, perhaps for the Trump team brings in uh, the advantage of opening up the prospective pool of jurors uh, that potentially could hear the case. Um, I think that the uh, district attorney's office and Fonnie Willis will continue the same strategy uh, based on what we've seen from the indictment and some of the testimony even today from the Secretary of State, who I understand is perhaps still on the stand or wrapping up, uh, I think she's got a good strategy uh, with respect to the case. And uh, I say stay tuned. It's going to be really riveting to see how this all plays out. Clint Rucker, Tom Dupree, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, new reaction from one of Trump's 2024 Republican rivals, Governor Chris Christie will be with us. Stay with us.
To our 2024 lead, Trump's latest trial date set for March in the federal case when it comes to overturning the election. Uh, That date could have a major impact on the presidential race. It's scheduled right before Super Tuesday, one day before Super Tuesday. We're joined by Republican presidential candidate and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Uh, Thanks for joining us. So, uh, Governor Christie, your reaction to the federal judge setting Trump's trial on the special counsel's election interference case, uh, setting it for for, uh, early March of next year. Um, You're also a former federal prosecutor, former U.S. attorney. Is that too soon, too far away? What do you think? I think it's a realistic date, Jake, given that it's a one defendant case. Uh, I remember talking to you at the time of this indictment, and there's some question about why did Jack Smith just indict Donald Trump and have six unindicted co-conspirators. I think today is the reason why he did that. Um, He decided that to get this case moved to trial, he had to restrict it to one defendant. He indicted the person he felt was most culpable. Um, And today, I think what the judge did was twofold. One, um, she gave them another six months to get ready for trial in a single defendant case. And two, she made it quite clear to the Trump legal team that the public relations games that they and their client play are not going to impact the decisions that she makes in the courtroom. Um, And so I think for Republican voters, the biggest thing they have to look at now is that, you know, we're going to have a a guy running for president who from March 4th, probably for the next four to six weeks, will be every day in a courtroom in Washington, D.C. and not campaigning against Joe Biden. Um, this is disastrous for the Republican Party. And this is why I've been saying right from the time I got into the race that given his personal conduct, given the stuff that he did himself, that he simply can't be our nominee. So on that debate stage last week, you um, and Governor Asa Hutchinson were really the only two to talk, uh, to call out what Donald Trump is accused of having done. Uh, although Governor, um, former Governor and former Ambassador Nikki Haley did point out that Donald Trump is, is the least popular politician in America right now. And, and she argued that nominating him would be a, a bad idea for that reason. Do you think the, the six, six out of eight of you, not including you and Hutchinson, raised their hand and said that they would uh, support him even if he were a convicted felon? Do you think that the other six actually feel that way or they're just performing uh, for the base? What, what do you think they actually think? You know, Jake, I can't imagine that six um, experienced people up there who have had the life experiences they have had and the political experience they've had can actually think that that's the right answer, that that's the right answer for our party. But more importantly, that that's the right answer for our country. And they'll have to search their own hearts and their own conscience about why they made the decision they made to raise their hand. But what I'll tell you is that I had absolutely no doubt in my mind that it's the wrong thing to do for our party, and it's the wrong thing to do for our country. We cannot normalize this conduct, Jake. Put aside the charges and whether you agree or disagree with the charges. No one disputes the conduct. And the conduct that underlies it is not only beneath the office that he held at the time that he committed many of these acts, but it's way below the conduct that you would want for someone who's going to ask for that job back. And I want Republican voters to understand They nominate Donald Trump. He's going to lose to Joe Biden. Independent voters will abandon us in droves in a general election. That'll mean a packed Supreme Court. That'll mean the elimination of the filibuster. That'll mean a lot of things that I think Republicans 
in this country will find a hard time living with. And we don't have to. We can nominate someone who could take on Joe Biden and his record directly. And I believe I'm the best person to do that. There was a, a column in the Philadelphia Inquirer by a progressive journalist named Will Bunch talking about how he thought the, the, the news media was doing a disservice to the public uh, by not frankly and candidly describing what he views as an authoritarian streak going on in the Republican Party. You haven't read the column, I assume, so I'm not even going to ask you about it. But you, you do describe the conduct of Donald Trump trying to overturn the election as, uh, as, as reprehensible. You, you do condemn it. Yep. But so many people in your party, and I'm not just talking about people running for president or on Capitol Hill, but I mean voters, Republican voters, don't seem to have a problem with it. And I'm wondering, do you think that your party has an authoritarian problem, that they really honestly don't have a problem with violently trying to stop uh, a free and fair election from going, going forward? No, Jake, I absolutely don't think that we have that problem. I think what we have is a Donald Trump problem. And that right now what's gone on is that people view Donald Trump synonymously with the Republican Party. And that if you oppose Trump, that's somehow favoring Biden. And many Republicans don't want to do that for very obvious reasons. Um, and I think that that's why we need to have this full debate and discussion that we just really started on Wednesday night um, about who should be leading our party and who should be leading our country. And I've said very clearly uh, on the authoritarian side of things, this is Donald Trump's problem, not the Republican Party's problem. He's the guy who thinks that uh, Vladimir Putin's an excellent leader and brilliant. He's the guy who thinks that President Xi is straight out of Hollywood. He's the guy who thinks Kim Jong-un um, is wonderful. I mean, these are things that he has said um, about these authoritarian leaders. And it's because Donald Trump would like to be one himself. Um, he likes that. He doesn't want to debate with anyone, as he showed on Wednesday night. He doesn't want anybody to disagree with him. And look, that's just not the way our system works. And I know that the truth is what matters the most. I'm going to continue to stand up for the truth. I urge everybody to go to chrischristie.com, donate to support the truth, because we're going to keep saying it. Um, and I think it's going to get through to Republican voters and to voters across the country. But it's going to take time, and I'm going to be patient and persistent. Governor Chris Christie. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Appreciate it. Coming up, the latest from police after murders near a Florida campus motivated by racism. And a new update coming in a matter of minutes as Tropical Storm Idalia gains strength, forecast to become a major hurricane and sets its sights on Florida's Gulf Coast. Stay with us. There was a booing directed at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, but a Jacksonville, Florida councilwoman shut down those hecklers. Okay, listen, y'all. Let me, let me tell you, we finna put parties aside because it ain't, it ain't about parties today. A bullet don't know a party. All that during a vigil Sunday for three black victims murdered by a racist white gunman in Jacksonville, a gunman hell-bent on killing black people. His actions have left the community shaken to its core. The victims were 52-year-old Angela Michelle Carr, 29-year-old Gerald Galleon, and 19-year-old A.J. Laguerre. 
targeted and killed by a racist white man because they were black. The terror unleashed at a Dollar General store by a, pers a person officials call a maniac. He then turned the gun on himself until uh, once p police arrived. Um, before that, uh, the gunman had texted his father to go to his room, and that's where the gunman's father found these deranged, racist messages that the gunman left. It's a pattern of hatred we have seen quite a bit in recent years in the United States. In 2021, a report released from both the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security called Domestic Violent Extremism, the Greatest Terrorist Threat in America Right Now, carried out predominantly, they say, by white supremacists in June 2015. For example, at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina, a white supremacist killed nine black innocents who had welcomed him in for prayer. August 2019, of course, a white supremacist in El Paso, Texas, targeting Hispanics at a Walmart, killed 23. Just 15 months ago at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, another white shooter motivated by hate and racism killed 10 African-Americans. Uh, those are just some of the hateful attacks against racial minorities within the past few years. And then today it's Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville, Florida, reeling from an all too familiar form of hate and violence in the United States. Let's bring in CNN's Brian Todd, who's outside the Dollar General store in Jacksonville. And Brian, we are learning more about what happened when that shooter initially stopped at Edwards Waters University, a historically black college, before killing three people at the store uh, where you are right now. That's right, Jake. Just a short time ago, some new and very disturbing information coming from school officials at Edward Waters University, just a few blocks uh, away from here, uh, t talking about what the shooter did, what, he, what, what, what took place when a security officer encountered him on the campus of Edward Waters University. That security officer's name was Lieutenant Antonio Bailey. Lieutenant Bailey said that he was tipped off by a student, that the shooter looked out of place on the campus of the university, and then he approached him. Here's what he said happened next. There was an individual that were uh, putting on tactical vests, putting on gloves, putting on masks, putting on hats. Um, and at that time, you know, I just wanted to approach the vehicle and figure out what he was doing on a university property. And Lieutenant Bailey said when he, when he approached the shooter, the shooter then sped off in his vehicle, uh, jumped a curb and almost hit a column. Also, some interesting information from the president of Edward Waters University, A. Zachary Faison, Jr., who said a short time ago that the aim of the shooter was to come to Florida's first historically black university and to commit uh, murderous havoc. But the sheriff of Jacksonville, T.K. Waters, had said earlier that the shooter did have an opportunity to attack people on the campus and didn't take it. Jake? All right, Brian Todd for us in Jacksonville, Florida. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the reaction at Edwards Waters University, where that Jacksonville gunman was spotted just moments before his deadly rampage. Sticking with our law and justice lead in the aftermath from Saturday's racist, deadly attack in Jacksonville, Florida, where a white gunman uh, motivated by racism killed three innocent black people. I want to bring in Jacksonville City Councilman uh, Rockman Johnson. He's also a professor at Ed Edward Waters University, the historically black college where the gunman initially uh, stopped. Um, firstly, Councilman Johnson, how are you? How is the community of Jacksonville and, and the campus? How, how is everybody doing? I will tell you, uh, and Jake, thanks for having us on. It was a heaviness. There was a heaviness in this community 
uh, that continues. I'm better, but I will tell you after I went over uh, to, to Newtown near the school to, to talk to our students, to be with the community, I literally came back here to City Hall, I sat in my office, I closed the door and cut the lights out. That's how heavy it felt being there. And as a journalist too, I've, I've spent my entire career telling stories. This story is one that literally snatched my heart apart. Yeah. Um, do you know if, uh, I, I just want to ask you as a journalist, as a former journalist, uh, if campus security um, alerted Jacksonville police after the shooter sped away, after being approached, or if the issue was dropped um, once he left? I'm told, and I asked myself, obviously, I think, as you said, uh, as a, a journalist, we're always going to be inquisitive about those stories. And so I asked the security team myself, and that was one of the things they said, that they immediately called JSO, the sheriff's office, in progress while they were pursuing the suspect. So I'm looking to get more information. I, I, we were briefed by the FBI, by the sheriff's office, and so many others. But the question then exists, why wasn't that person stopped since they were trespassing on the campus of Edward Waters? What was it that allowed them to get away? And I, I, I certainly appreciate the heroic things that that security department did, but I want to look at what could be done differently. And I want you to take this into account, Jake. We were supposed to be there, we meaning my colleagues on the council, and so many others, uh, uh, Secretary Marsha Fudge, uh, we partnered with her to do what's called the HUD House Party. And so the House Party event was scheduled to be at Edward Waters on Saturday. Mm. However, we ended up moving the event to the, to the State College, Florida State College, about two miles away, because there was an issue with a pipe that caused the air conditioning, air, air conditioning to go out. So, but by happenstance and of course through the blessings of god we ended up not being in that space or this could have been so much worse so many questions follow uh, all of these tragedies um one of the ones that i have uh those who are put under the the baker act which the gunman was under when he was a teenager they're not allowed to legally purchase guns Uh, the baker act is a law that allows people to be involuntarily detained and examined up to 72 hours when they're undergoing a mental health crisis. Jacksonville Sheriff says there was nothing indicating that the gunman couldn't own any guns. Um, Do you think Florida's laws when it comes to this intersection of people with severe mental health problems who are dangerous to themselves and others uh, and the gun laws, do you think that's strong enough? Jake, we're just weeks away from passing a permitless carry uh, statute in the state of Florida. Absolutely, they aren't strong enough. They are, this intersection, it leaves loops available where we end up with people who don't need to have guns, who don't need to have access to these kinds of weapons, and they get them. We also are in a place where the kind of divisive rhetoric that's coming from some of the people in leadership, uh, when you come, especially when it deals uh, uh, issues with the African-American community, where it talks about, uh, you, I'm sure you've heard it, before where they were saying that uh, uh, slavery had benefit to some of the people that were slaves uh, or the enslaved. When you start having those kind of conversations and you wanna get rid of diversity, equity and inclusion programs, you are planting the seeds of discord and those seeds bear the fruit that we saw from this crazed gunman on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, the, the not not to get into a quibble about about the changes, I think it was the idea, It's it's in the, curriculum that some slaves were able to learn trades that later they benefit they were able to to benefit from i know it's very i'm not going to get into it yeah but at the end of the day there are no redeeming qualities to slavery none right 
not. No, I, obviously, I agree with you. Uh, Councilman Rock, uh, Rockman Johnson, thank you so much for your time today and our thanks, thoughts thanks and prayers and, and best wishes are, are with all the people uh, from uh, the community of Jacksonville uh, and Edward Waters University. Coming up, uh, the brand new forecast coming in for Tropical Storm Adalia, which has uh, a path set uh, on hitting Florida. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we are following two big breaking stories this hour. It has been a day of huge developments in Donald Trump's various legal fights. In Fulton County, Georgia, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, has been on the stand testifying, fighting to move his case from state to federal court to separate Trump, separate from Trump and the other 17 co-defendants. In Washington, D.C., the judge there set a trial date of March 4th, 2024 for Donald Trump. This is for the special counsel's investigation into the alleged plot to overturn the 2020 election nationwide. That trial date is one day before Super Tuesday, the height of the 2024 presidential campaign, theoretically. Our reporters and legal experts are here to break down every single detail of today's developments, but we're gonna start with more breaking news. Just moments ago, we got an update on Idalia, the tropical storm that is currently building in the Gulf of Mexico and barreling towards Florida. Evacuation orders have already been issued along Florida's west coast. Idalia is on track to be a major hurricane when it makes landfall. Let's get right to CNN's meteorologist, Chad Myers. And Chad, what is in the latest forecast? A top speed of 130 miles per hour now, up from 125 at the 11 a.m. advisory. More time in the water, very, very warm water, and an awful lot of watches and warnings here. Let's get right to them. Hurricane warnings now all the way south of Tampa, all the way up toward Apalachicola. Notice how many counties inland are also in the hurricane warning. That's Gainesville, not quite to Tallahassee, but if this storm goes a little bit farther to the west, Tallahassee, you have a big storm on your hands. Now, all of a sudden, on the east coast, all of the east winds, tropical storm warnings are now watches in effect here for the east coast of Florida because of the other side of the storm. So here it is right now. It's only 70 miles per hour, only. But it's about to jump over the western part, Pinar del Rio, of Cuba. When it gets into that very warm water of the Gulf Stream to the southwest of the Dry Tortugas in Key West, that's when it's forecast to rapidly intensify up to a 130 mile per hour storm. I know that says 120, but in between it's 130, in between the forecast points that I have there on the map. So you get to realize here that a small curve, a small right turn takes a major hurricane into very populated areas. If you've been in Florida for a while, and I've covered them, Charlie made a last minute turn. It was supposed to hit Tampa, or did it go? Punta Gorda. Ian was supposed to hit Tampa, where did it go? Well down here, Fort Myers Beach. These things, as they rapidly intensify, can turn toward the right. You cannot let your guard down. You need to be ready. And certainly, you need to be ready by tomorrow morning to go if you need to go. Run away from the water. If you have surge coming to your house, you need to get away from that surge. House can probably deal with some wind, although there will be surge of 7 to maybe even 12 feet up there in Cedar Key. There will be wind gusts over 100. That's going to put a lot of power lines down. 
Lots, millions maybe at trees, these pine trees that are up here in this Big Bend area of Florida, they will come down, will make travel almost impossible as soon as those trees fall over the roadways. You need to, if you are going to evacuate, if it's in your mind at all, tonight or tomorrow morning, first thing, because a lot of things are going to go down rapidly and you don't want to be stuck in your car behind a power line that's down and you can't go any farther. You want to go before that happens. Jake. And Chad, my understanding is the storm could also possibly cause flooding in Georgia and, and North and mm. South Carolina. Mm, sure, sure, absolutely. Wind, of course, there will be tornadoes here in parts of Florida on that right side of the eye. There will be an awful lot of rainfall that comes down with it. And yes, even here out here in the middle of Franklin, making another storm system, a major hurricane here, making big waves in New Smyrna. But North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, you all could be under the gun for significant rain events, six to 10 inches. Not as much maybe as Matthew put down in the Carolinas, but that that heavy rainfall is certainly a possibility and more people die because of fresh water flooding now, Jake, than storm surge. People get away from the storm surge, but they don't know how to get or where they should go for this fresh water flooding in tropical systems. All right, Chad Myers, thanks so much. Turning now to our other top story just moments ago, testimony wrapped up in Fulton County, Georgia. That's where former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is trying to convince a judge to move his case from state to federal court. Meadows is claiming that his participation in the attempts to subvert Georgia's election results were part of his official White House duties. CNN's Caitlin Polance is outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Caitlin, how, now that that testimony has wrapped, what's next? Well, Jake, now a judge has to decide whether Mark Meadows has made a substantial of enough case to him today as a witness testifying under oath here in Georgia federal court that he was doing something within his duties as the chief of staff as he was working with Donald Trump and even lawyers from the campaign, others with Trump's campaign, connecting them to legislators and also Secretary of State in Georgia, others in the state of Georgia, to try and either look at the election results or even contest them as Donald Trump wanted to do. So it's a very simple question that the judge has to make a decision on that has a lot of legal complexity to it. Right now in court, the closing arguments of the day are taking place. There were three witnesses ultimately that testified here. Surprisingly, Meadows himself, a, a huge gamble from his attorneys to put him on the stand as a criminal defendant, but to enter testimony. He was on the stand for around four hours or so. And then following lunch. Uh, there were two others who testified, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, who received that call from Trump that Meadows was also on, where Trump was asking him to find votes. And then another lawyer, Kurt Hilbert, he also testified today in the court. And so the judge has heard all of this evidence from these witnesses, what the prosecution has asked them questions, that the defense side has has. Uh, asked questions as well, Meadows defense lawyers, and now the judge will hear the legal arguments, and we are waiting to see whether he will make a decision today. Uh, he very well may not. That doesn't often happen same day as a long proceeding like this in federal court. Caitlin, um, moments ago, the first defendant in this case pleaded, and, and uh, he pleaded not guilty. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is the first defendant to enter his initial pleading, to be arraigned, essentially. This is Ray Smith. He was a lawyer working around Donald Trump after the 2020 election in Georgia. He was in the room with fake electors as they were trying to cast those votes for Trump. He did enter his not guilty 
plea. We expect many more to come in. There are 19 defendants, ultimately. All of them would be very likely to be entering a not guilty pleading at this time, even if some of them do want to plead guilty. Ultimately, this is the arraignment process at work. We did get uh, a date on the calendar for others to be arraigned if they want to do so in a court appearance. But it does appear that they can do it not uh, in court itself or even over Zoom. That date is going to be September 6th. And the other thing, Jake, there are so many moving parts here. We yeah. just got at CNN uh, through an open records request several uh, of the arrest statements or the arrest records from the sheriff's office, essentially the formal paperwork showing the uh, defendants as they're being arrested with all of the data uh, that either they self-submitted or that the jail collected for their processing. All right, including Donald Trump's, uh, presumably. Caitlin Polance in Fulton County, Georgia, for us. Thanks so much. There was also a movement in a different Trump legal battle. Today, Judge Tanya Chutkin set a trial date in the federal 2020 election interference case, March 4th, 2024. That is the day before Super Tuesday and in between two other Trump trials. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Pettis joins us now. And Evan, things got pretty contentious during this hearing uh, when the judge and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys were tr trying to discuss uh, the trial date. That's right, Jake. Uh, John Lauro, one of the former president's uh, attorneys, uh, really took offense uh, to the push by prosecutors to try to bring this case, to try to get this to trial as early as January of 2024. Uh, he called that uh, request absurd and uh, ridiculous. And he said that what prosecutors were trying to get was a show trial, not a fair trial. The judge uh, immediately pushed back. Judge Tanya Chutkin said, uh, OK, let's take the temperature down. Uh, and she went through methodically all of the time that the former president's lawyers have really had to prepare for a trial. And that's why, in the end, she said there was a public, there was a public interest in having a prompt resolution of this case and why she set a date uh, of March 4th, which, as you pointed out, is one day before the, uh, the, 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 the Super Tuesday primaries. Now, what this means, Jake, is that you know, after after that primary, uh, the former president is going to spend a lot of time in court. The prosecution has said that their case is going to take four to five, four to, four to six weeks uh, to present, which means that the former president is not going to be able to be out campaigning. He's going to be stuck inside that courtroom here in Washington uh, instead of being out uh, out in the field. Jake? We also learned quite a bit uh, as the prosecution laid out its discovery today. Tell us more about that. Yeah, look, I mean, this is partly what was at issue. John Lauro, uh, the former president's attorney, says he can't possibly get ready for trial. And one of the things, the data points, I'll, I'll read you just some of the data points uh, that were brought up by prosecutors today. He said, you know, there's just too much for them to go through. 12.8 million pages is what the, the prosecution has turned over as part of the discovery process. 47,000 pages is what prosecutors say are really key documents. And uh, 27,000 pages have to do with uh, the former president's social media posts on Twitter and on his own platform, Truth Social. So it gives you a sense of the amount of, uh, of data and, and, and documents that they have to go through. But you can see the, those numbers there, Jake. The prosecutor said, look, 47,000 pages is not exactly the 12.8 million, the, the, the picture that they uh, have drawn, the, the, the defense has drawn, that it is impossible for them to go through uh, the judge by the way, pointed out that the former president, you know, he obviously, he claims to be a billionaire, has the means, Jake, to have enough lawyers to go through this stuff and get ready for his trial. 
Evan Pettis, thanks so much. Coming up next, the political impact of Donald Trump's new trial day. Plus, we're going to hear from the security guard who turned away the Jacksonville gunman from the historically black college campus before the gunman shot and killed three black people at a nearby dollar store. Stay with us. We are about to get updates to two major stories we're following today. Police at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill are going to hold a news briefing after ordering a lockdown of campus earlier today because of reports of a suspect who was deemed armed and dangerous. Also, authorities in Jacksonville, Florida, are going to share more information about the racially motivated uh, shooting, the racist shooting of three black people over the weekend there. And we'll watch uh, both of these press conferences and bring you all the vital details. Until then, we turn to the other big story in our coverage, a trial date has now been set in the federal election subversion trial for Donald Trump. Let's talk about the case and the politics surrounding it. Here with me now, S.E. Cup, CNN political commentator, Jamal Simmons, former communications director for Vice President Kamala Harris, and Jeremy Saland, a criminal defense attorney and a former Manhattan prosecutor. Jeremy, let me just start with the, the basic reaction that you have to this March 2024 uh, election uh, subversion trial date. Is that too soon, too far away. What do you make of it? Jack Smith is no doubt happy, although he certainly could be happier. He's done a good job of limiting the, the scope of this indictment solely to Donald Trump so he can move it efficiently forward. And the judge recognizes that and recognizes the importance of this trial in terms of the public needs to know and have an answer. And Jack Smith and the court also was clear that there's 47,000 documents that really are pertinent or the most important. So this entire spectrum of documents, you're hearing millions and millions of this material, is not everything that should hold them back. So the judge is doing a good job. But I would expect there's a potential appeal waiting in the wings down the road. So just because for us lay people here uh, that aren't lawyers, 47,000 pages of documents, that is a lot, that is not a lot, that is manageable. What's your take? It's all relative, right? 47,000 could be a lot to some and a little to others. But he has the team and the ability, and especially with today's technology, to identify certain things that he's looking for. But what about Trump's legal team? That's what I'm referring you to. You know, Trump does have the team. Right, right. The point is he has the team to go and examine those documents. He knows what he's looking for and what they're about. And some of these documents, if I understand it correctly, are things that he he should already have from social media, for example, and internal documents on his own. It's all not fresh new documents. Right. It's inform- a lot of it is stuff he generated. I see. Um, so Trump's next campaign appearance, we're told, uh, is with South Dakota uh, Governor Kristi Noem. It's a rally there on September 8th. Uh, Noem uh, deliberately, we're told, chose not to run for president because she was convinced Donald Trump was going to be the nominee. But according to uh, Washington Post poll, Trump is the only candidate to actually lose support following last mm. week's debate D- do you think that it's it is do you hold do you agree with governor Nome that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee or do you think it's still a chance that it could be someone else no i think Dom- donald trump is going to be the nominee because i haven't seen the willingness the fortitude among the other uh, candidates to really take him on and make a thing out of this unprecedented um, turn of events, these four indictments, the fact that he was probably going to be in prison at some point over the next year or two, um, they really aren't touching it that much. Uh, so, yeah, I think he'll be the nominee. But he's in a bit of a bind as he campaigns because 
All he wants to talk about are the indictments and how they're coming after me, so they're going to go after you. He doesn't want to be talking about policy. But that's the exact opposite of what his lawyers are going to want him to do. Right. So every campaign event that he's going to go to, I imagine his lawyers crying in a corner somewhere, just, you know, bracing for this inevitable, um, you know, bad, bad move. I mean, meanwhile, we're told uh, that House Speaker McCarthy uh, is preparing... Uh, for an impeachment inquiry. Uh, and we're also told, CNN is reporting, that there is not yet unanimity among House Republicans for that. Regardless of, I mean, I don't even know what the impeachment inquiry is for <laughs> yet, and I don't think they've decided yet. It's right? an impeachment in search of a cause, of a reason. But, but regardless, um, I can't imagine Democrats are excited about anything having to do with airing Hunter Biden's dirty laundry and everything having to do with the millions of dollars he took in, the influence campaign alleged, et cetera. Nobody wants to talk about Hunter Biden. Well, Republicans do. <laughs> no <laughs> Democrats want to talk okay, about Hunter yeah. Biden. But you know what? I bet you also a bunch of people who are just watching the news don't want to hear about it either. Because a lot of people in America now have people in their families who've had drug addictions and have gone through tough times. And so here's the difference between um, what the, what's happening with the Bidens and what's happening with Trump. Everybody said Hunter Biden had a problem. We know it was a problem, and he's trying to rectify his problem. Hunter Biden was willing to go to court and admit to some of the problems that he's had. Donald Trump has never admitted to a single possible thing that he's done wrong. And I think that's part of the issue, where people just don't want to hear anything else from Trump about this. And they're willing to say, you know what, Hunter, he was a problem, but it's not the president's problem. But listen, I mean, you, gotta, you have to keep in mind that as galvanizing as Trump's indictments are for him, um, you have to wonder if it will be just as galvanizing for Democrats if Republicans pick this impeachment fight and suddenly the stakes are higher. I, you, might, you might be a little careful with that, Republicans. Jeremy, I want to ask you, Mark Meadows, a former White House chief of staff, um, testified today that his executive branch duties regularly included te- uh, talking to state officials. And he's saying that this is one of the reasons why the, the case in Georgia should be moved from Georgia to federal court because this is part of his federal duties as White House uh, chief of staff. And that includes when Trump had him arrange a call with the secretary of state of Georgia to, quote unquote, find 11,780 votes so that he won Georgia. Do you think the the judge is going to be inclined to agree? Yeah, this is a classic example of what we call you admit what you can't deny and deny what you can't admit. He's in a stuck spot. He has no option but to go that route. And it shouldn't be lost in anybody else that he is the one who testified. There was no other evidence on his behalf to corroborate what he was saying. He had to go that route because otherwise it's a Hatch Act violation. And, you know, he's darned if he does and darned if he doesn't. He's really in that unenviable position. And no, to answer your question directly, I think he loses, period. And I think it's a, a white knuckle day for him. I mean, he must be stressed beyond belief and rightfully so. All right, Jeremy Saland and S.E. Cup and Jamal Simmons, thanks one and all for being here. Really appreciate it. Coming up, police are giving an update right now on those racist murders of three black people in Jacksonville, Florida. We're going to bring you the developments in a moment. Plus, we'll take a look at this moment in America with the founder of the 1619 Project. That's next. Back to our law and justice lead. Right now, police in Jacksonville, Florida, are giving the most recent update into their investigation, detailing the moments of the racist shooter before he went to the Dollar General store where he killed three innocent African-Americans on Saturday. CNN's Isabel Rosales has more now on the deadly attack that was fueled by racism. Lieutenant Antonio Bailey hailed a hero for chasing off the gunman who later opened fire at a nearby Dollar General in Jacksonville, Florida on Saturday. 
That shooter first entered a parking lot at Edward Waters University, Florida's first historically black college. He could have gone anywhere. Uh, it's not by happenstance. It's not just, you know, on a whim that he chose to come to Florida's first historically black college or university. According to Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters, police have not reported finding any firm evidence the suspect intended to attack the university. There were students um, that stopped me and um, uh, in the parking lot and advised that there were gunmen. The shooter drove off after being approached by Bailey. To me, the students that, you know, we preach the same saying every day, uh, you see something, say something. And the students, they saw, they said, and I was able to approach that vehicle. I was definitely saddened um, that it was indeed a, a tragedy. The scene of the tragedy that followed, now marked by flowers and crosses. A community grieving three killed Saturday in the racist attack. He hated blacks, and he, I think he hated just about everyone that wasn't white. Um, he made that very clear. Now... More information about the gunman, identified as 21-year-old Ryan Palmetter. Deputies released this edited surveillance video at the Dollar General store, showing him in a tactical vest armed with a handgun and an AR-15-style rifle with swastikas drawn on it. Then he opened fire. He understood what he was doing and he understood why he was doing it. The shooter had no criminal arrest history. The sheriff says he purchased a handgun in April and an AR-15-style rifle in June, both legally, despite as a teenager being temporarily and voluntarily held under Florida's Baker Act for mental evaluation for up to 72 hours. I don't know legally, uh, given the way the laws are written right now in the state of Florida, that there was anything that could have been done, and, and therein lies the frustration for me. The victims in Saturday's shooting identified a store employee, Annal Joseph A.J. Lagar Jr., and customers Angela Carr and Gerald Gallian. His killing leaves a four-year-old fatherless. We're just trying to figure out how to tell his daughter that her dad's gone. It's hurtful because I thought racism was behind us, but evidently it's not. The attack in Florida, the latest, and a number of shootings targeting black people, including at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York last year, and at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. I'm angry. I'm sad to realize we are in... 2023, and as a black person, we are still hunted, because that's what that was. That was someone planning and executed three people. And Jake, we have new information from a press conference that's happening right now at the sheriff's office. Uh, deputies revealing that the shooter previously worked at a Dollar Tree. This is a Dollar General where the shooting happened. They've also released three un, uh, new videos here. We're not sure of the chronological order of these videos, but I'll tell you what they indicate. Uh, the shooter going into a family dollar, a totally separate store. And then we have this video at Edward Waters University, the campus there, that HBCU, uh, and we can see the shooter going behind a vehicle there and putting on a tactical vest. And of course, we know that after that, minutes after that, he showed up at this Dollar General. The final piece of video that authorities released just this moment is of police entering this Dollar General, and that is uh, when deputies say that the gunman took his own life. Jake.
Isabel Rosales uh, in Jacksonville, Florida for us. Thank you so much. Uh, chilling video there. Saturday's racist shootings in Jacksonville cast a pall over what was supposed to be a day celebrating 60 years uh, of progress on civil rights in America. Activists gathered on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and the Reverend Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech during the 1963 march, which uh, actually today is the 60th anniversary of it, but the commemoration was over the weekend. Um, we're joined now by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who covers uh, racial injustice and other stories and other topics for the New York Times Magazine and won a Pulitzer Prize for the magazine's landmark 1619 project describing the transatlantic slave trade and its legacy. Um, first of all, uh, Nicole, if, I, if it's okay if I call you Nicole, um, what's your reaction to this horrible shooting happening on the 60th, on the commemoration day at least, of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom? Well, I think that it is um, an awful and uh, far too common reminder that as we seek to mark um, racism, racial injustice as a thing of the past, that it is with us every day, that we have not banished that ugly side of ourselves as Americans. And um, many people were seeing the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington as, you know, talking about what we were fighting against a long time ago. But in fact, it was evoking a history to say that the struggle for equality, the struggle to end racism, uh, the struggle to um, ensure and secure Black Americans' rights and full citizenship continues. And this is just um, a very um, devastating example of that. Obviously, some things have improved uh, for African Americans, for civil rights and voting rights and the like since 1963, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act uh, among them. Do you, do you think a lot of the racism is just more politely shielded and hidden. Um, what, what's your take on how, how far we have come and how far we need to go as a society? Yes, I mean, I, I absolutely would not pretend that America in two, 2023 is the same as America in 1963. But what's also clear is that uh, we have forward progress and then we see retrenchment. And uh, we're clearly in a period of retrenchment. So you know, on most measures, um, the black-white poverty rates. Um, if you look at unemployment rates for black Americans, they're still twice that of white Americans. The racial wealth gap has remained unchanged for black Americans um, since Dr. King was assassinated. And the fact that we still see racialized violence regularly in this country shows that we still do have a long ways to go. You know, the Supreme Court just struck down affirmative action, which was trying to help address that legacy. We know that the Supreme Court struck down uh, the heart of the Voting Rights Act and that it is harder for Black Americans to vote than it was 10 years ago. So I think that in America, we become sometimes obsessed with this notion that progress, uh, forward progress is inevitable. But um, backward progress happens in this country as well. And whether we're moving forward or not, really is largely dependent upon who we are as a society. And we're in a society today that is deeply polarized um, along racial lines and where uh, too many politicians understand that race is the original wedge issue and are creating the environment to see just the kind of violence that we witnessed in Jacksonville. 
But the wedge issues are discussed differently today, right? I mean, in 1963, we were just three years away from Lester Maddox, a, a, a proud racist segregationist in Georgia, becoming the, the governor of Georgia. Uh, Lester Maddox could not exist today, but Lester Maddox would not talk the way he did then today were he running, right? I mean, it's different. What are the wedge issues today that you hear? Yes, I mean, absolutely. So since 1968, um, it is no longer legal in this country to explicitly discriminate against Black Americans. So, of course, we've learned over the last... um, 60 years that you have to use different language, that you have to use language that appears to be race neutral, um, but that sends the same dog whistle. So we can look at, you know, Ron DeSantis running on this uh, platform of, uh, against what he's calling wokeism, but where those of us who study history, who understand um, uh, the society that we live in, understand that that's often coded as language against Black Americans, as language against um, other marginalized groups. And how do we know that? Well, he also banned the teaching of African-American um, advanced placement studies in the state. So, yes, we, we do see a more coded language, but it's also uh, a language of, um, you know, that's not often that coded. I mean, Donald Trump is, you know, came to office on a pretty openly white nationalist campaign. Um, we see people like Tucker Carlson, who are allowed to have a major platform on the most watched um, cable news television in the country and who um, openly talk to white nationalist talking points. So we kind of have this wink and a nod um, racism, but it's, it's barely concealed and all of us can hear it. Nicole Hannah-Jones, thanks for being with us uh, on this anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. We appreciate it. Thank you. CNN visits the site where the plane carrying Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin went down inside Russia. We'll show you next. Back with our world lead five days after the plane carrying Wagner warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin fell out of the sky north of Moscow. CNN visited the site only to see a barren field bulldozed with a small makeshift memorial with flowers and a Wagner uniform badge. CNN's Matthew Chance is inside Russia for us. As officials there deny any involvement in the deadly crash, and Russians remember Prigozhin's legacy. Don't expect to see these scenes on Russian state television. When it comes to the Wagner leader who challenged the Kremlin, then died in a plane crash, there's a virtual media blackout on public grief. And Wagner supporters like Dmitry in Moscow are simply not being heard. Evgeny Prigozhin's death, he says, just confirms that there are fewer and fewer of us who really think about our country, our history and our goals. Prigozhin really showed everyone how it should be done, he adds. Wagner did a great job, says Maria, and they are heroes of our country. But of course, everyone makes mistakes she explains. But in Russia, some mistakes can be fatal. The Kremlin is slammed as absolute lies. Allegations Prigozhin was killed for leading this abortive military uprising in June. But the fact his plane plunged to the ground two months after to the day 
has fueled suspicions. Many doubt the official investigation would ever reveal state involvement. Already there are concerns at how quickly and carelessly evidence has been dragged from the crash scene. And when CNN visited Monday morning, it had already been flattened and cleared. Just a small memorial to mark the spot. But the memory of the Wagner leader may not be so easily erased. All of us are angry at what happened, says this former military officer, now running for political office in the Russian Far East. We all considered Prigozhin our primary commander in the special military operation, he told crowds of mourners. The Kremlin may not like it, but even in death, Russia's mercenary leader continues to strike a chord. Well, Jake, the next significant event is likely to be Prigozhin's funeral, a date for which has not yet been officially announced. Uh, the concern for the Kremlin is that it could see yet more public support for the killed mercenary leader and, of course, for his criticism of the Kremlin's conduct of the Ukraine war. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance for us in Moscow. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss former Secretary of Defense under President Trump, Mark Esper. Secretary Esper, good to see you. So the former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson wrote an opinion piece in the Daily Mail where he says Putin, quote, must have killed Prigozhin and, quote, I cannot think of another example of such ostentatious and uninhibited savagery by a world leader, not in our lifetimes, unquote. Uh, former Prime Minister Johnson argues that this event is the ultimate proof that there can never be a negotiated peace deal with Putin in Ukraine. Um, what's your take on it all? Well, my take is that the Prime Minister is stating the I think uh, Secretary Esper has frozen up there. Uh, and we will take a quick break and bring him back. Coming up with a kiss that could result in criminal charges and has sparked a global outcry. That's next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 